listening to CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. And we're featuring here on Full Circle the summer edition of the Malahat Review. And our first guest today, who's here in the studio live, is John Barton. And he first heard of the Malahat Review while studying poetry with the magazine's co-founder, the very esteemed Robin Skelton, in the late 1970s. And in the years since, John has published 10 books of his own of poetry, including him with Brick Publishers in 2009, and For the Boy with the Eyes of the Virgin, Selected Poems, which was published in September 2012. His work has won three Archibald Lampman Awards, a Patricia Hackett Prize, a CBC Literary Award, and a National Magazine Award. His personal reading has taken him from Margaret Atwood to Aaron Moore to Daryl Hine to Alice Oswald and back again, with tangents leading him to fiction by Oscar Wilde, Alice Monroe, Ellen Hollingshurst, Elizabeth Hay, David Levitt, Sarah Schulman, among others. And he's also very partial to Annie Dillard. Co-editor of the Ottawa-based ARC Poetry Magazine for 13 years and editor of Vernissage, the magazine of the National Gallery of Canada for two years, John became editor of the Malahat Review in 2004. Welcome, John. Thanks, Colin. We're featuring the summer edition, so let's start off talking with that. Sure. Well, it is a pretty summery issue. There's a short story by the Toronto writer Stephen Marsh, which is set on Georgian Bay, but it has kind of a dark twist in that the two families that go there are fleeing unspecified plague and a series of plagues that's besetting the world. So they go there to be safe. And then we have the winners of the Long Poem Prize, a poem by Claire Caldwell about the dissection of a whale, and uh, another poem by Vancouver writer Kim Trainer that looks at the massacres in Bosnia in the 1990s. Mm. So dark summer reading mm. and then a really wonderful excerpt of a biography of Norval Morisot the Ojibwe artist by Armin Garnet Rufo which I thought you know I could read a little bit from each of them sure and the issue is available from the Malahat Review as well yeah it's uh, on the newsstand across Canada in Victoria you can buy it at the Uvic bookstore at Chapters Boland Books and Monroe's and, of course, you can buy it directly from us through the website. Okay. And the cover has some photos on it. Yes. So um, well, the Stephen Marsh short story. Stephen Marsh told me, and you'll find this, there's an interview with him on the website with me. And he found them at a garage sale. And there are these period photos of a summer holiday snapshots, black and white, who knows when, maybe the 60s, maybe the 50s, and they inspired sort of the locale for the story. Mm-hmm. And so it's the first time that I know the Malhats ever done it. We featured them throughout the story, and we put about five of them on the cover as well, six, mm-hmm. six if you include the back. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a charming concept. And then, of course, the photos, they look like snapshots, and they look like they're laid out on you know either a picnic table or a deck or a dock, or something like that. Yeah. So they're they're fun, yeah. I think. Would you like to start off with a reading? Yeah, sure. I'll just read a short excerpt from uh, Stephen Marsh's story, which is called How the Children Stayed Beautiful in a Time of Many Catastrophes. And so the two families have already been on their way, escaping Toronto to go to Georgian Bay. 
At Honey Harbor, we filled every receptacle we could find with gasoline for the boat, left an IOU on the counter of the ice cream stand, said our hushed private goodbyes to the world, and then roared across Lake Huron in the Boston Whaler with the children laughing hilariously in the stern. The women looked as good as grapes and white wine, Stella with her blonde hair streaky with amber in the high, rushing air, and Lee, like some rabbi's wife, utterly lapsed. No one is more gorgeous than a survivor. The glamour of endurance is absolute. The plague made us giddy, coursing through that savage paradise with its bent trees and exposed stone and rough ruddiness. We took every breath as a mark of our magnificent fortune. Dave's grandmother had purchased 20 islands in 1921 for $5 apiece and built two cottages on the largest with room to sleep ten, a tennis court and two docks. I suppose that Dave and Lee could have taken their pick of friends up to the island. We had buried fifty ounces of platinum at the place, and there were my years in the military, and we could play tennis, but I think it was mostly the kids. We loved each other's kids. Luke was Luke, a real Luke, too, who wouldn't love Luke? And Minnow used to invent those expressions. Like, I remember once she was drinking soda water, and she turned to me and said, this water's sunburst. So during the second death, we always called soda water sunburst water. During the plagues, the humanity of metaphor was more than its ordinary salve. It amounted to fleeting salvation. That's what Luke and Minnow knew from the beginning, from well before the change. Everything is like something else. John Barton, reading from the current issue of the Malahat Review. Other things um, that you'd like to highlight? I'll read two short excerpts from the two um, Long Poem Prize winners. And the first is from a poem, a long poem called Osteogenesis. So I guess Genesis from Bones. And it's by Claire Caldwell. And this is about the whale. The blue whale died in the Sea of Cortez between June and September. She sank for three days, cleaving kelp forests, schools of krill, dark planet plummeting through galaxies of lanternfish, squid, inking hieroglyphs onto her fins and tail fluke. She landed with ceremony as a pot roast is lowered to a Sunday table. Fewer humans have touched the bottom of the ocean than have walked on the moon. And then from uh, Kim Trainer's poem about the massacres in Yugoslavia in the 1990s. And I'd just like to say a little bit about the structure of the poem. It's an abecedarian poem. So the first lines of every stanza start with um, a different letter. So the first stanza, all the lines start with A and all the way through Z. Okay. And so this is the stanza with all the lines that start with C. And just as a little note as well, the poem is inspired by something called the Book of Belongings. And basically, the investigators cataloged all the possessions found with the massacre victims. So, carried in the pockets of her winter coat, sea glass and stones, carried out of the earth like a child, carry him in your arms, bring her into the sun. Cases of unidentified remains are in addition to the 1,756 photographs. Clay sticks to hem of coat and sleeves, close eyes, close mouth, clothed in a language that cannot stretch so thin, content of perception and emotion. 
Thank you, John. John Martin reading from the current issue of the Malahat Review, and you can find out more about the current issue at malahatreview.ca. You mentioned earlier that uh, when we were talking about some work-study positions that are available at the Malahat Review. Yes, uh, they're open to UVic students, and they are awarded to the Malahat through student awards and uh, financial aid. And there are two positions. One is for an editorial assistant, and the other is for a marketing assistant. The editorial assistant will help process unsolicited submissions, and the marketing assistant will chiefly be involved in doing the social media and other marketing for Words Thaw, which is our spring symposium in February. Would you like to talk a little bit more about Words Thaw? Sure. This will be the second time we've run it, and last year it was a one-day event, and the surveys showed us that people found sort of going from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. a little bit of a drain. So we're going to spread it over three days. And we're going to begin it with a Lansdowne lecture, which has been uh, awarded through um, the Faculty of Humanities, and we'll invite a prominent writer to come and give a speech on a topic of their interest. Then that's on a Thursday, I think February 20th, Then February 21st, we're going to have an evening reading. And then on Saturday, we'll have workshops and seminars. Okay. And it's coming. That's February? February. I think it's 20th to 22nd. And people can find out more about that again at malahatreview.ca. Yes. Okay. Other things coming up? There's currently a contest going on, which uh, the the entry's closed on. um, Well, we just... August uh, 1st, I guess. Yeah, the August 1st, the Constance Rook... um, Creative Nonfiction Prize, and we got 160 entries, so we're now just starting to do the screening. And the uh, final judge is John Vallant, who won the Governor General's Award about 10 years ago, or the Golden Spruce. And we have another contest running right now, the Open Season Awards, which uh, closes on November 1st. And the winners will be published in uh, the spring 2014 issue. And there's three categories, poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction. It's the free-for-all, hence open (laughs) season. And the judges, I think, if I remember correctly, are Jeffrey Donaldson for poetry. It's based at McMaster. And, oh, goodness... The other judges right now are escaping me. But <laughs> <laughs> people can find out about that. Yeah, it's all on the yeah. website. Yeah. You um, pay a $35 entry fee, and okay. in exchange, you get a subscription to the magazine. Okay. Would you like to do another reading from sure. the current issue? Sure. I'm going to read an excerpt from uh, Armin Garnet Rufo's biography of Norvell Morisot. And for people who don't know who Morisot is, he was an Aboriginal artist who grew up on a reserve in northern Ontario. And he is sort of considered the founder of something formerly called the Woodland School. And there's kind of this really shamanistic quality to his painting. And uh, Rufo, who teaches at Carleton, was invited to contribute to a catalog accompanying a show at the National Gallery. Mm. That was the beginning of his exploration of Nora Fowl Morso's life. And I believe the biography is going to be published by University of Manitoba Press. Mm. So I'm just going to read the beginning of a section called Wonder Boy about this remarkable thing that happened to Morisot as a very small boy. And it begins with a little epigraph. I still believe in the waves of my people. 
the Great Spirit told me, I will guide you and keep you every day. At age nine, Moroso is run over by a one-ton truck in the yard of St. Joseph's Indian Residential School in Fort William. The double wheels come down on his skinny body, and the huge tires drive him into the earth as lightning shoots through his legs, pelvis, and abdomen. The vehicle sputters to a halt. A metal door slams. The driver scrambles out and grabs Noraval's legs and pulls him from under the truck. He places the boy on a sheet of plywood and carries his limp body into the church rectory. Moriso will think of Michelangelo's La Pieta when he remembers this. The priests and nuns scurry to help. They call the children to assemble, and at the sound of the bell, the boys and girls come running in from across the schoolyard. As Father Gallagher performs the last rites, he gazes down at the boy with divine compassion, because to him death can be far more rewarding than life. His words are like sacramental wine poured over little Norvell to relieve his suffering and carry him heavenward. O oh God, welcome him into your presence. Then he may rejoice in you with your saints forever. We ask through this Christ our Lord. He recites the Mass with conviction dripping from his lips like divine unction. By now, though, Noraval is so far away he cannot hear a drop of Father Gallagher's words as they spread over the congregation, the manner of prayer for a blessed journey into the embrace of Christ beyond his hearing. He finds himself standing in a forest of brilliant green, light dappling through the leaves and crowning his head. Before him down a long narrow path is his grandmother, Veronique, making her way towards him. Her black skirt sways from side to side. With each stride, her silver crucifix dangles on her bosom. She speaks, and he can now hear. She tells him not to be afraid. Get up, she says, gesturing upward with a wave of her hand, and he does. His eyes open to the shock and puzzlement of everyone circled round him. He lets out a moan as though shaking off whatever has occurred and slides off the plywood onto his feet. Thank you, John. John Barton reading from the current issue of the Malhat Review. That's the summer issue and contains winners of the Long Poem Prize, uh, poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction, and book reviews. What's happening for you, John, writing-wise? Oh, <laughs> what am I doing? I'm... Um well, I finished one uh, manuscript of poems, which uh, now I'm just waiting to hear from the publisher. Okay. It's called Polari, and Polari is a term for a type of gay argo that was spoken in the 50s, and uh, words that have survived into today are words like butch. And then I'm just kind of writing new poems, no particular focus to them, and you know, the Malahat takes up a lot mm-hmm. of energy, as okay. you can probably guess. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just kind of cruising okay. through keeping up with uh, the deadlines as we're talking about yeah. the summer issue. Next week, I'm going to send the fall issue off to the designer, okay. you know. So um, yeah. this feels not exactly like old news, but I'm so completely involved in the fall that yeah. I'm already living there. Yeah. And so the fall issue will be coming out? October, yeah, okay. uh, middle of October. Okay. And again, people can find out more information about the Malahat Review and the upcoming issue and all the other things we've been talking about at www.malahatreview.ca. Thanks very much for coming in, John. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me.
Of course, you're listening to CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. My name is Brian. I forgot to say that at the beginning of the show. And, of course, the interview with John Barton was conducted by my co-host, Colin. And now we have our second half guest who's live in the studio with us, Dorothy Field. And Dorothy is a visual artist as well as a writer. Besides several books of poetry, including The Blackbird Must Be, published by Sono Nice Press, their website www.sononis.com. She is the author of a children's book, In the Street of the Temple Cloth Printers, and Paper and Threshold, both of which have grown out of her frequent travels in Asia. And we'll try to talk with her a little bit more about that. She lives in Victoria beside a seedling Gary Oak. Welcome, Dorothy. Thank you very much. Your poem in the summer issue of Malahat is entitled Food Bank. Would you like to read from that? I will. Okay. Food Bank. My regular Friday shift, 10 a.m., the doors open, a phalanx of men, mostly middle years, locomotive force, surging forward, faces ruddy, hair grizzled, a few dapper, most wrapped in dirty winter coats, worn jackets, roaring down the steps to the church basement, grab a number, heads down if it's their first time, a bit of swagger if they know the ropes. The early ones slide into the seats at the long table, others head for cups of orange juice, the scant homemade goodies, squash from someone's garden. They scan the photocopied list, pork and beans, mac and cheese, canned corn, canned soup, canned peas, small packets of sugar, powdered milk, coffee, film canisters of cooking oil, a roll of toilet paper. Peanut butter runs out fast, only instant noodles, five bean soup mix, rolled oats if you're late. There's a run on spam and the two tins of salmon, the one bag of potato chips, the jar of Nutella. The things no one wants linger. Capers, water chestnuts, bottle of real lemon, what church people donate when they clean their cupboards. Women straggle in slow today, worn like mama cats, kids in snowsuits or at school, a few well-dressed like they work downtown, but the paycheck just won't stretch. We take the old Chinese men to the back room, let them point, try to find something for the ones with no stove or no can opener or no teeth. Thank you, Dorothy. Dorothy Field reading from her poem, Food Bank, in the current issue, the summer issue of the Malahat Review. Can you talk more about your poem? And well, um, I guess I've been doing a once-a-month shift at the food bank well, maybe about a year. I'm not sure how long. And it's always impressive, the goodwill from the church. It's also impressive that what's on offer is so scant, <laughs> and I wouldn't want to live on it. <laughs> And how the church, which is not my church because I don't go to church, <laughs> being Jewish, I don't go to synagogue either, <laughs> how the state of the world these days when so many people have to rely on um, food banks for low-quality food. 
we were talking earlier about some of your other work and some of the other folks that you've encountered. I'd like to talk a little bit about stories from the margin and your work with peers in art and, and yeah. writing. Well, that was in 2003. I don't know why I remember the date. I don't remember any years, but I remember that one. And some listeners may know of Janet Rabinovich, who was an unbelievable force in Victoria for social change. And she had been working with peers, prostitutes, empowerment, and education resource society for many years. And she was tired of people asking her to tell her what it was like for sex trade workers. And she said they have to tell their stories. So she got the funding to do this project. And we met for four months. And I facilitated the writing and the art. And we ended up publishing a small booklet. And we had an art show. And it was very, very powerful. And it sort of convinced me that I really could do something which I had wanted to do for a while, which is write with people who don't tend to have a voice. And so I have gone on from there. <laughs> okay. Well, just quoting from your introduction in Stories from the Margins, the circle has guided me, opening for me a window into the world of sex work. Participants called the group class, but I was the one in school hearing stories, learning a new language. Can you speak more about that? I can. I'll just say that most recently I was writing with people at a joint project that AIDS Vancouver Island and SOLID, SOLID is a Society of Living Intravenous Drug Users, did. And I've been writing with homeless women, and I write with anybody who will let me write with them. And in every case, it's a privilege for me because I'm shy, basically, and I don't just go up to people on the street and say, tell me about your life. <laughs> I think some people do, but it's not for me. So in these writing groups, uh, I get to sit in, and clearly I'm something else. I have never been homeless. I have always been well-fed and well-housed. And people I write with don't know exactly who I am at first, but for whatever reason, we tend to develop a trust, and then I'm there and I hear the stories, and that is a privilege. How do you even approach, you, you said you facilitate these writing workshops with groups of people who probably aren't used to writing and may perhaps never have written anything much at all in their lives. Tell us, tell me okay. how you do that. Well, in fact, the range is enormous. In the writing groups, there are people who have been through university. There are people who are barely literate. I remember finding at the Peers Project that there were some women who struggled to get three sentences on paper. Sometimes those sentences were as powerful or more powerful because it cost so much to get them on paper. And so I try to balance the writing between things that are kind of light and goofy and trying to also get at the real stories. And I always start telling people the rules. And the first rule is you can't do anything wrong. And of course, nobody believes me. And so then everyone is invited to read what they have written. And then at the beginning, people always say, well, I did it wrong. I, I, I just, you know. And I say, you can't do anything wrong. And over a number of sessions, people do believe that you can't do anything wrong. I, I mean, I say, you can't do anything wrong as far as you're writing with me. <laughs> and it tends to work out. But 
in the last solid group. I wrote with the solid people a year ago, and it was just brilliant. And the point of that project is that the AVI staff are politicizing people about the politics of poverty, and then I'm doing the writing to sort of fill in some of the other stuff. And the first time I did it, it just was great. The second time, oh, man, there was so much uh, glitches. Everything was a glitch. And finally, AVI brought the people who had graduated the year before back. And the outcome of this couple of months training, street college they call it, is that the solid folk run a convergence for street people where they pass on the kind of information they've learned and, and open discussions about homelessness and all of the other issues that come up. And so when the previous graduates came, everything fell into place and it was great. And I keep bumping into participants on the street. And as it turned out, I couldn't go to the convergence this year. But when they tell me about it, you can see that something has shifted, something has changed. Someone has listened to them, and someone has made it possible for them to make a difference for other people. And it's quite extraordinary. Dorothy Field, you also have art. Can you uh, talk a little bit about your art? Your last show at the Martin Bachelor Gallery in yeah. 2011. Drawings of shoes as well as uh, drawings from photos taken in Cambodia from your travels in Asia. That's Can you talk, right. talk well, a little about your show and your art? It was a bit of a mixed bag, that show. <laughs> there were the shoes. I found two stashes of little girl shoes, and uh, the first stash on the street, presumably for other little girls to take home, and I didn't have a girl to take them home. And so first I passed them up, and then I thought, I have to have them, so I went back and I got them. And then I found a second stash, so I knew they were meant for me. And I did pastels where the shoes somehow ended up in the drawings. But for me, the main part of the show was the series of drawings I did from photographs I took at the, it's called the Torture Museum. It's Tall Sleng, which is the school which the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia in their appalling five years of terrorism set up to torture people. And when the Vietnamese rousted them and came in, they kept everything as it was so that everyone would see how horrible the Khmer Rouge was. And the Khmer Rouge had, like the Nazis, documented with infinite detail each person. They had a special setup where you put your head in a certain place so that be perfect for their cameras. And they photographed and photographed and photographed. So in some of the classrooms are these photographs. So I photographed the photographs and there were all these strange reflections because they were under glass and there were windows and I just drew from them, I mean drew them, and I drew exactly what I saw. So if there were weird reflections, I put them in whatever it was. And when I was describing to people what was going to be in the show, a lot of people said, well, I can't look at that. And I said, I hope that you will look at it because, in fact, they were just faces. The faces were full of pain. They were full of anxiety. They were full of all sorts of things. But there was nothing horrific. It was just the face of pain. And 
I think we have to look at that. Can you talk more about your other travels in Asia? Would you like well, to? I was tra- well, starting in 1984, I was then married to a teacher, and the Nanaimo School District was in bad financial shape, so they gave anyone who had been teaching for a while and was therefore on the higher end of the salary scale three days to tell them if they would like a year off and $8,000. And, of course, <laughs> the, chance was, the, the answer was obviously yes. <laughs> so we ended up doing three long extended trips to Asia. Our daughter was eight years old the first trip, and we hauled her around Kathmandu, and she really didn't like walking very much, and we had to talk about what was the name of that horrible doll that Anyway, I can't even think of it, but it was extraordinary, in fact, and it was such a great experience that we did it two more times. Among the things that were amazing, that first trip when she was eight and she turned nine in Calcutta, we didn't see another Western child for 10 months. And so people were just thrilled to see this beautiful child. It was as if they wondered if Westerners knew how to do it and how we made more of ourselves. <laughs> and uh, so... In many cases, we went back and visited people we had met the first trip. So she was four years older, and then she was six years older. And people were so thrilled just to see her grow. It was really touching. We had a couple of obsessions. One was we trekked in Nepal each time. But we also looked for handmade paper because I was very involved in making handmade paper at that time. We also looked at textiles because I started as a weaver. And we looked for strange, scattered communities of Jews. And in India, there's a real mother load. So uh, that was great. Also in Burma, yeah. Did writing come out of your trips, those early trips? Did it come out then, or did you build on it later and in more of your later writings? I actually found the first time trekking in Nepal that just that act, and we trekked around Annapurna, and because we had an eight-year-old daughter, we were slow. So it took us about five weeks to get around Annapurna. And that daily uh, piston movement of feet, poems just started coming. They were pretty thin and shallow, but they started coming, and I started writing them down. And um, I started writing, and um, that's what happened. And so that very first trip, we had an introduction to a man in Ahmedabad, India, and he was an expert on tribal and folk art. And so he sent us to a man named Vagi, who printed cloths for the worship of the mother goddess. And so we went thinking we'd go once, but Vagi had such a beautiful face and such a spirit that we kept going back and ordering more cloths. And he couldn't speak English. None of his family could speak English. They had a minuscule room that the parents and the youngest kids lived in, but the oldest kids slept on the street on charpoys, and a lot of the work was done on the street. And uh, Vagi's smile, you know, I couldn't forget it. And so when I came home, I kept thinking about it, and he had made our daughter a booklet where he stamped some of the most wonderful, these real folk blocks of gods and pigs and women carrying water on their head and Ganesh and all the things which he had blocks of. And um, 
of course, she wanted to color in it. And I was so mean. I said, no, you can't do that. And I was too uh, foolish at that point to realize I could just photocopy the whole thing. But anyway, I kept thinking about him. And um, I thought about his deep wisdom that I felt in his being. I mean, he he lit up. He was a lit up person. And I wanted to somehow give kids the sense that you could have almost nothing and still have a rich and um, wonderful life and be a wonderful person. So I wrote this kid's book. It took, I sent it out about 25 or 30 times before someone um, took it. And uh, thank God they did. And it sold about four copies and I made about 13 cents. But, you know, it was great. Your current writing, you mentioned William Head and your current writing and workshops. I am. Yeah, I'm once a week, I'm going to William Head. And I do the same kind of writing there that I've done everywhere else. And I have about five regulars, and they're really bright guys. And each one has a very strong personality. And they're all men who, William Head being the best of a bad lot, There are possibilities there for men who don't want to just watch TV the whole time. So these are about five who really would like to be doing something different. And um, they write well, and uh, it's really great. I never know what's going to (laughs) happen. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. This is Dorothy Field. Her poem, Food Bank, appears in the summer issue of the Malahat Review. For more information about the Malahat Review, please visit www.malahatreview.ca. And just regarding the Stories from the Margins project that we mentioned with peers, you can find out more about that at www.peers.bc.ca. That's it for today. Take care of one another out there.